bringing relevant and engaging insights to human resource and talent development professionals. This is Talent Champions with Diana Thomas, sponsored by Franklin Covey. Here is your host, Diana Thomas. Welcome to another episode of Talent Champions. I'm Diana Thomas, and I'm honored to serve as your host. I have really been looking forward to my discussion around cultural agility with today's guest, Paula Caligiuri. Paula is currently the professor of international business at Northeastern University. She's also the president of TASCA Global, which helps global organizations build cultural agility in the workforce. She is a PhD from Penn State in industrial and organizational psychology, and she's the author of Cultural Agility, Building a Pipeline of Successful Global Professionals. Welcome, Paula. Thanks, Diana. Well, we invited you to help us learn more about how to improve cultural agility in the workplace. And we also have some questions from our audience. But first, I'd like you to share a little bit about yourself and your current role. Certainly. For the past 20 years, I have been helping individuals and organizations build cultural agility. I'm currently, as you mentioned, I'm currently a professor at Northeastern University. This is my seventh year there. And prior to that, I was 18 years at Rutgers University in their HR group. Um, Now I also run, as you mentioned, I'm the president of of TASCA Global and we work with large organizations, mid-sized organizations. We work with the military, we work with the Peace Corps, any group that needs individuals to be successful in a multicultural environment. So that's been my purpose, it's been my passion, it's been my research. And uh, I love this topic, so thrilled to be here. Great. And I tell you, as I had a chance just to talk to you a little bit and then do a little research, I'm really fascinated by this topic. And I really believe, even as a former, you know, learning leader, that companies don't even realize that they need this. So maybe we start first by just defining what cultural agility is. Sure. So so cultural agility, as I define it, is the ability to quickly, comfortably, and effectively work in different countries and with people from different cultures. So this could mean that an individual who never leaves his or her domestic location, but has multicultural interactions frequently, those individuals need cultural agility. And on the other extreme, it could be individuals who are being sent for an international assignment or do a lot of business travel. Really, any kind of multicultural um, context in which one needs to work, that's where the need for cultural agility is. And to your point, you're absolutely right. Companies don't do this well, and individuals are not inherently great at this. It's just it's not the most natural thing that we do. Yeah. And I think about how the world has just evolved. We are so much more global. And even if your company doesn't have branches in other parts of the world, uh, we're seeing more and more companies just have such an international global workforce here if they're in the U.S. And the ability to just bring people together or lead people at a higher level, more uh, inclusive, ensuring that people are engaged and you know bringing their whole selves to work so they can be more productive or most productive is so critical. So I would ask our audience, you know, before you tune out, if you're saying, hey, I'm not a global company, I think the things that you're going to be sharing with us are great for our talent champions that, you know, own talent for their organizations or any leader that has to lead people that are not all, you know, the same born here in the U.S., That's certainly the case. Absolutely. Especially with smaller firms, because smaller firms, when they tend to grow, a large percentage of our growth market right now with the consulting group is when a firm hits about 10% international operations. Because at that point, they're in a situation where they need, in in order to succeed, in order to grow, they need to be effective in a multicultural, cross cultural situation. Yet at the same time, they tend not to have the bench strength of individuals who are who are um, have had careers that have been international. So it's interesting. I think for those of your audience members who are in domestic context right now, as you said, not just the multicultural need, but also for future growth. 
Yeah. And I think about just, you know, how tight the the labor pool is right now. And employees are only going to stay around if they feel engaged and they feel, you know, connected to the purpose and connected to the leaders. And as I've coached some leaders over the last two years, this challenge with, you know, leaders connecting with people that are different from them, you know, have a different cultural background. And I think that's so important because sometimes uh, employees leave and and you don't know why. And and I talk to companies that want to build more of a diverse global workforce, but they're challenged with getting those people to stay. Absolutely. And, And it's not something leaders and managers will inherently do well. I can't underscore that enough. Uh, DDI a few years ago did a study that looked at 13,000 global global professionals around the world and asked them to rate and rank a variety of competencies. The three competencies that were last, three competencies that individuals said they did least well were the only three that had any kind of multicultural component to it. In other words, people were rating themselves pretty well on almost every other competency with the exception of any time they had to interact in a multicultural or international situation. Um, Same is true for students. So so when uh, NACE did a study, I think it was last year, of employers asking to what extent students had various competencies, the one that they said that was least present among graduating students was cross-cultural agility and multicultural fluency. It's just not something that that we naturally do. But as you mentioned, in this labor market, in this reality, we need to become effective and culturally agile. Yeah, I think that's so important. And that's definitely what I saw, you know, when I was uh, executive as well as what I'm seeing with some of the executives that I'm coaching. But it's interesting because I used to think, you know, in my role of leading learning, that we did a great job. We would tend to hire somebody from a different country, and then we put everybody through, you know, developing a a global mindset, and we thought we were good. And then kind of like, wow, some of these people just aren't doing a great job. And after talking to you, I really like the way that you kind of broke down the different components of whether somebody is going to be effective and then, you know, what you need to do to help them be more effective globally. Would you mind sharing that with us? Sure, sure. I'm happy to. You know, it's funny, a lot of the components of what makes somebody culturally agile is also a little bit of the perpetuated myths that exist in organizations. Um, So there's three components One of them is is what you named, that that cultural awareness. This is just truly the basic knowledge that individuals can see situations, see interactions, see, you know, whatever, from a different lens and interpret something differently. That is knowledge-based and it's important. But cultural agility, you you cannot go to a class and become culturally agile. I wish you could. As a professor, I <laughs> wish I could. I, I'd love to be able to teach this to everybody, but but that's not not it. So so one component is that awareness. It's important, but not enough. Um, a second component is the other one that is it's a bit of a myth out there, and that is well, if someone's from a different country, or if we send someone to a different country and they go to a different country, or they've traveled, they must be culturally agile. Um, it's a fallacy. You can't pick someone up from one country and put them in another country, have them breathe the air of that other country, and then expect them to be effective understanding and interpreting situations from another person's perspective, Um, gaining trust, gaining credibility, communicating effectively. So unfortunately, those are the two that most companies default to when determining who's going to be among the global talent pool send them to training, give them some experiences. And and those two, again, on their own, just aren't enough. The third component and the most critical one, and I, I hope all of the talent champions out there hear this because this is so critical. It is the competencies that individuals bring to those experiences and how those competencies affect how they receive that training. Um, these are competencies like tolerance of ambiguity, 
and humility and perspective taking and resilience. I mean, these are, are absolutely critical. And what we find both in the research and in practice is that if you take individuals who have some of those competencies and provide them even, even informal training or provide them even smaller experiences, but impactful ones, you'll start to see cultural agility build and build very quickly. So that's the missing piece. It's the missing component. And it's the one I, I, I so hope every talent champion out there uh, hears and starts to enact within their organizations. Yeah. So I think about when I was training to go uh, internationally and uh, aligning the other Hamburg universities around the world to the standards of the U.S., the Global Center. It was very helpful to get to know, you know, different cultures and uh, ensuring that you understood their practices so you, you know, fit in a little bit better. But I think the piece that helped me and, and you were talking about is just your natural personality. I love to learn and I'm curious. So I every time I meet somebody that's different from me, it's like I want to learn from them. And I think that's a piece, this natural curiosity or wanting to continue to learn is really important. And I remember hearing a study, I won't remember exactly where it's from, but one of the competencies that showed whether or not somebody was going to be successful at higher levels of leadership, actually it was two, one, the desire to lead, and then the desire to learn. So I think this desire to learn about other people and being naturally curious is such a, a positive thing to be looking for when you're identifying those people for the international positions or putting somebody in a leadership position that oversees people of different cultures. Certainly the case. Every single one of the competencies has a significant personality component. And personality has about 50% of the variance any given personality trait has a heritable component. So some people have a bit of a natural wiring for these competencies and, and as such a bit of a natural wiring for getting more out of multicultural, intercultural, cross-cultural, international experience. It's not though the only thing. So there's there's activities and things that individuals can do. You mentioned curiosity, and I'll just use that as an example. So when we do um, competency assessments with global professionals, and we see that their their curiosity is a little on the lower side because that's one of the the key competencies, we actually have them practice out behaviors before multicultural reactions. So we we encourage them to, for example, this is just one small behavior, but ask two more questions than whatever your natural limit is. So you do it naturally, Diana, because that's you. That's how you're wired. But some people don't. They like to figure it out for themselves. They like working within their own brains as opposed to trying to have others um, give them more information. We use behaviors like that to help encourage and foster those competencies. So it's a long way of saying with any one of these competencies, there's a component that we should be selecting for as talent champions and there's a component that we can build and develop and grow as learning um, and development professionals. I love that. I, I'm going to steal that as coaching some of my leaders is just those that are more introverted, you know, that don't want to uh, get as much dialogue going or don't don't get fueled by that energy um, is to coach them to ask two more questions than they're naturally comfortable <laughs> doing. <laughs> That's just one of many, many, <laughs> many suggestions that we that we could offer, but it, it's amazing. And, and what's interesting, what we found on the research side, um, we did a study on on the competency of humility. Humility is another one of those, you know, it's kind of the granddaddy predictor of individuals who do well in intercultural, multicultural settings. And hum, humility is interesting because it breaks into two components. There's the felt humility, somebody who goes into a setting and says, okay, as you said, it when you were training around the world, that you, you could say, look at, I'm a fantastic trainer, but I'm not sure how to be effective here. And so, so with that humility, it's the willingness to say, you know, what's the best way to offer this training session? And it could be something as, as simple as like, for me in a country, 
whether I introduce myself by my first name or by my title, mm. um, whether I start to be more approachable and accessible, or I start a bit more um, uh, at a distance. You know, what what establishes credibility? What establishes trust? So that that idea that you don't have that information, but those within the environment do, and they can help you learn those behaviors. So that's that kind of felt humility. Expressed humility is interesting because it's the extent to which the environment will naturally want to help you. So it's the extent to which you comport yourself in a way that people who are in a context that you're unfamiliar with kind of know that you're you're that fish out of water and, and start to help you learn the rope, so to speak. And both of those components of humility are important. So that expressed humility as well as the felt humility. You know, I've done a lot of work with leaders in regards to being authentic. And I think a huge piece of that is genuine humility, you know, great, great stuff. Okay, so you've laid out a great definition, and you've given us some of the components. And we've talked a little bit about some of the barriers that may be in the way in regards to not off or not really looking at the competencies. So maybe let's turn to what can our talent champions do to help build, you know, leaders that are more culturally agile. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I think for a lot of organizations, at least most of those with with which I work, you know, they, they truly don't know what their bench strength is of culturally agile professionals, leaders, managers, any individuals that need to sort of touch a multicultural workforce. So, so one of the most basic starting points is, is to just get a sense of what, what does your organization currently look for? What's that dashboard in terms of, of cultural agility? It's not one that we often assess for. It's not one that we often talk about. So that, that is where a lot of our firms um, begin. Then where they go next kind of depends on the immediate need. So for some organizations, they've got a long lead time in terms of when they need individuals to have kind of great cultural agility, when they fully need them to be culturally agile. So with those companies, sometimes it's effective to say, you know what, let's try to, let's try to hire in for it and then give people sort of stepped up experiences throughout their, their progression um, through the organizations. That's sort of one approach. Um, Another approach is to say, you know what, there, we need it now. <laughs> there's a set of leaders, there's a set of managers, there's a set of professionals who their success, their ability to be culturally agile will have a direct influence on our bottom line. So with that group, we are going to do a concerted effort to start to build their cultural agility. So with, with that group, oftentimes what we'll do is, you know, we, again, again, start with that you know, understanding the dashboard, understanding where they be, where they are, and then trying to do those stepped-up um, experiences, but in a far more concentrated way. So, for example, we might do a half-day workshop on the awareness building, but also understanding your competencies. And then we might do, depending on sort of where they are, we might do some individualized action plans. Um, in some cases, we do short-term immersion experiences. So for some of our firms, for example, we take a group of executives and have them do community-requested uh, projects within NGOs around the world. So with that, we might have them um, do an immersion project based on their, on their skill set. So it could be if they're finance execs, they might be doing a financial plan rather for an NGO as per their request. It's a stepped-up experience. It's a, it's a short-term experience. It's a coached experience. And it's amazing how transformational a week or two or three can be. And that is you know, kind of the where do you start. Really understand what your, what your critical needs are for, for your firms to execute on your firm's global strategy, and then identify the pockets of those individuals who really do need cultural agility, understand the bench, and then start to, to build backward from there on the selection side, on the recruitment side, selection side assessment, and then uh, training and development. Great tips. I love that comprehensive approach. 
And and one thing I was thinking about as you were going through that is if we have some of our audience members that want to lead at a higher level and be more of a global leader and be more effective and successful as a global leader, are there suggestions that you would make to them if they are traveling internationally? So as I interact with some of the leaders, they said, you know, we love to travel. You know, personally, they've been traveling to learn more about different cultures or different parts of the world, which I think is a wonderful thing. Are there some things that you recommend that they would do or a mindset that they would have? Mm-hmm. So a lot of people have an intellectual curiosity about different cultures, and they love to see and experience different places and try new foods and all that. What I'd recommend, though, that that's all great. And of course, it's foundational. But more, more than that, what I would recommend when you go to another country is, say, for example, you're on a business trip, you're five days in, pick the country. Find a few peers who are host nationals of, of that country and share a meal, spend some time together, uh, not to do sightseeing or touring or whatever, but just to really understand their lenses, what they do, how they do it, um, how they view their work, how they view their job, how they view the organization, um, what surprises them about working with, in, in our case, Americans. Start to see yourself through another person's eyes. It's a skill that most people don't have. Um, Asking questions like, you know, how can I be more effective here? Um, it's amazing how honest individuals will be when you when you ask it that way, because um, because they're helping and and they they really do want to help you succeed. And the answers really will help you build out that that cultural um, competence. My strong recommendation, and it's what I do in my classes, it's what I do in my executive programs is I, I get my, whether it's my students or my executives, I actually have them connecting with individuals from other countries and have them have real authentic conversations. So it's not about task at hand. It's not about an assignment. It's just about getting to know each other. Um, the quicker we as humans can find points of similarity the faster we can attach to another person. The more we attach to another person, um, the more we're willing to see them through, you know, through the eyes that, that they have and understand their values and how they see the world. It's my wish for everyone that the next time you're you know, on a cruise or on a, or on a business trip or you know, going somewhere is take the time to get to know someone um, or some people who are core local nationals, host nationals, but but really do so in an authentic way. I love it. Great, great advice. So let's turn to the questions that our audience sent in. And thank you to everybody that uh, responded back to emails and on LinkedIn just with some questions for Paula. And she's been so wonderful that said, whatever comes in, I'll answer. So thank you for your <laughs> flexibility, your agility. You can answer well. <laughs> Okay, so the first one that came in is how do you handle people who aren't naturally willing to step outside of their cultural comfort zones, or perhaps they don't place a positive value on workplace diversity? Right. That, that's a really good question. We've, we've done a series of studies, both in university settings as well as in the corporate settings, on exactly that issue where individuals who start with a really, let's just call it really low level of cross-cultural competence or cultural agility. And what we found was if we put them in very novel situations, it actually doesn't help. And in fact, their, their, their cultural agility might even get worse um, because it's too much. You know, this kind of goes back to how our bodies handle dopamine and, and sensation. So if, if there's just too much novelty we start to withdraw and we start to cling to familiar. So, so if you imagine a freshman on the first day of orientation, they're nervous and they're scared and they're scanning the room for anyone who looks familiar. It's the same thing with us at work, right? If it feels like too much novelty or you're under too much stress, you cling to that, those who are familiar. So, so if you imagine someone who's naturally wired to sort of get nervous very quickly, 
what you want to do is step up the experience in a very controlled way. For those individuals, for instance, we start having them work one-on-one with someone from a different culture and really have them in their project work, in their whatever their task might be, have them kind of (laughs) deeply understand that one individual. Setting them into a multicultural setting right away isn't effective. Um, so, the, But the opposite is also true. If you take someone who's already culturally agile and you give them a kind of a, a, a not particularly novel situation, like having them work one-on-one with somebody from a different culture, it's really not going to change their cultural agility. Everybody has to stretch, but it has to be the stretch they're ready for. So my, my best advice there is if someone's unwilling to engage, just step up the experience a little bit and then move from there. I really like that. You know, give them a stretch that they're ready for because, you know, it's not a cookie cutter approach. Definitely not. Not with cultural agility. (laughs) Definitely not because it actually can do the cookie cutter approach can can sometimes do more harm than good. Um, And it it sort of creates some really bad bad behaviors in many ways. So great. Thank you. The next question came in from a company that is currently expanding overseas. This is the learning leader. And he asked, how do we help people feel like corporate cultural assimilation is not an event, that it's a process that takes time organically, and it's different from everyone? That one's a little bit tough. So in some ways, a little bit of training in this regard goes a long way. Remember, humans, we're humans, we're, we're socialized to the norms and behaviors and values that we have. And those norms and behaviors and values are shaped over time and shaped slowly and become more and more embedded the older we are. It's, that's just the reality of the entity we call culture, whether it's an organizational culture or national culture, you know, your unit's culture, whatever. So when you think about a little bit of training goes a long way, a little bit of training and helping individuals remember how did they learn their own cultural values? So for instance, when you were a child, did you refer to adults by Mr. and Mrs. or did you refer to them by their first names? How did you learn that? When did you learn it was acceptable? When didn't you? It was socialized slowly over time, probably when you were first learning how to speak, how you were just individuals and the like. Um, How did you learn things like eye contact? How did you learn things like whether you take your shoes off when you walk into someone's house? Really all the basic things, whether they're norms or values. So then you step back and say, okay, organizational culture, it's not a flash. It's not a, hey, let's put up some posters on the wall and, and, and send out the memos and assume our culture has changed. It's slow and it's organic and it's it's visible and it's visual and it's, it's leaders reinforcing, just like parents reinforced to take off shoes when you walked in the door, or keep them on when you walked in the door. It's going to take time. That's how we learn. That's how our brains process culture. That's how our brains process values. It becomes ingrained over time. So I think a little training in this regard will go a long way. That's my, that's my guess. Yeah. And I think, like you said, too, it's really understanding that this takes a while and that the culture of the company is patient and doesn't, you know, just do these quick things and then you're on your own. I I know uh, before I would travel um, by myself, I traveled with somebody that was uh, very familiar with the the country I was going to, and that person was my buddy the first time. And then the second time, I would meet with somebody that was more of a local person, and that person was kind of my buddy. So understanding maybe and helping to uh, also mirror that with the person that it takes a while and it's not going to happen overnight might be helpful as well. I think your your audience member was asking about organizational culture. And keep in mind that in any subsidiary around the world, that internal culture will always, always, always be a hybrid of corporate culture and national culture. It's just impossible to extract people from the socializing agents that they've lived with all their lives and then expect them to fully adopt the whatever the company says is the new value structure. So, so, so that needs to be expected, but that too can be shaped over time. So it's, it's a process as your, as your audience member mentioned. Important point to remember. 
Okay, our next question is, how would you recommend an immigrant-friendly employer improve staff interaction when there's communication barriers among team members? Yeah, communication and language is so critical for so much of what we do at work, right? Um, it's, It's amazing how something as basic as eye contact so, so different cultures handle eye contact very differently. Some, you know, Americans, we, we tend to look at people in the eyes a little longer than others, but almost universally, <laughs> the initial, initial eye contact matters. But we naturally as humans tend to make more eye contact with those who are like us than those who are not. So something, a real simple kind of um, approach is to regardless, even if the language is a barrier, um, making eye contact and smiling warmly. Again, Americans tend to smile a lot <laughs> compared to other cultures. So those two things, eye contact and that kind of initial smile, even though individuals might not be able to communicate effectively with one another, goes a long way in um, warming the environment that you're in to one another. And again, not natural. The other thing is that names are, are unique in that we like to have our names pronounced correctly. And sometimes it goes a long way for individuals to take the time to learn how to pronounce someone's name correctly. So, so saying hello and greeting with an individual's name pronounced correctly goes a long way in, in creating that warm environment. Um, what, what happens next you know, are those conversations that are a bit more authentic, a bit more personal, a little more real. Um, that requires some language skills. So it's always polite and nice to you know, at least learn some, some basics of another language. But then beyond that, of course, uh, language skills take time. Mm. But, but those tips as far as just, you know, working on the eye contact, the smiles, and I agree with you, so important to pronounce somebody's name. And if you don't know how, ask them and, and listen and practice it and genuinely want to be able to pronounce that name correctly. There's websites out there that you could you could actually type in, how do I pronounce and then put in the name? And, you know, thank God for the internet, right? You can learn (laughs) how to pronounce someone's name before you go or before you interact with someone. It's just, it's just really small tips that change the way our brains are processing the people with whom we're interacting um, and the way others will process us. That's cool. That's very cool. Great advice. Okay. The next question was, how do you help people address physical touch and space at work? For example, some people are natural huggers, while others prefer to maintain the space. Right. I think this is true with any behavior that has um, the ability to be interpreted through a values-based lens, which is Oh, it's our it's our limbic system. So so we were going to have an immediate reaction to how close someone stands to us, whether they greet us with a hug or a handshake or a bow or a kiss, you know, all that other that other stuff. Whether they um, use a lot of eye contact, smile a lot, whatever the it is, how they're dressed, anything that has kind of physical response will have some type of limbic processing. So we're one culture uses an embrace to show just a, a connection, a respect. Another culture would find that very intimate and just so incredibly inappropriate. What oftentimes helps is to have some some basic kind of fundamentals of cultural difference training to help people understand basically an intro to your intro to your brain and how um, how the limbic system works in terms of processing what actions and reactions are, are automatic. So if it were me and, and, you, and I was in a, in a multicultural environment, there wasn't a standard norm. So some cultures, there's a norm for handshakes or there's a, there is a norm for sort of a more of a warm, huggy kind of approach. If an individual isn't comfortable in that norm, sometimes it's helpful to kind of go through some training. So they can at least understand how their lack of hugging or their hugging is being interpreted. That's a little bit thorny because um, we're getting into sort of how individuals process certain behaviors, 
but it's it's usually effective to to just help people understand that their behaviors might be interpreted a little bit differently. And then after that, it kind of says, okay, are you in the, if you don't mind me using this a bit crass, but in the buyer or seller position, we do a lot of, of training for sales reps who are, are, who are selling to um, foreign born or culturally diverse individuals. And in their case, the more they adapt their behavior, the more effective they will be. So if they're in some cultures where you should hug, hug. <laughs> if you're in cultures where you make no, no contact at all, do not make contact because you're you're operating with the buyer's limbic processing. So little knowledge goes a long way. No, oh, that's terrific advice. Becoming aware of how people greet each other and it's so different around the world. And and for me, that was really helpful to know. The other thing that I wish I would have learned before I, I did some traveling when I went, um, I think it was Hong Kong, China area, is just understanding how people define personal space. So there, you know, it's very populated. Like the first time I got on a train or in an elevator and people, you know, they fill it like they're really close to you. I kind of freaked out. I was like, wow, this is like double the number of people we would put in an elevator in the U.S., you know? <laughs> There's fascinating research on that, like how close is too close and and how how much variance there is across, around the world. It's, it's really cool. Um, a good tip on that, if anyone needs just a tip, is if you're in a meeting and you're not sure how close you need to stand, stand still. Don't move because we as humans naturally move to the position that's most comfortable to us. So if you don't move, the other person will move as close to you as he or she believes is appropriate. And then you have to work, you know, like this is switch to, you know, executive processing instead of limit processing. Don't move. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. Very interesting. Great tip. Thank you. Okay, next question is, what recommendations do you have for colleagues that come from different socioeconomic backgrounds? That's a great question. You know, socioeconomic status, whether we like it or not, is a strong socializing agent. You know, how we were raised, what we were raised with, what kind of school we went to, what kind of friends we had, what kind of games did we play, what was afforded to us throughout our lives, those are socializing agents and powerful ones. So just like any other cultural difference, it's present, it's it's there. The difference though is all of the, the physical indicators that there could be cultural differences at present are gone because oftentimes in a workspace, you don't know what an individual's background might be um, unless you're friendly enough to have that conversation. This is a really, this would be a really very nuanced answer because it depends on how much of one's past they want to bring forward from an authentic self perspective. And I'm sorry if that sounds like a, a bit of academic jargon, but if like, let me just share a little bit. So, so I'm, my dad was an auto worker. My mom was a homemaker. Um, I'm the youngest of five. We didn't grow up with much. I've worked since the day I was 16. You know, I, I can give you all of that background. And in the U.S., that background, that socioeconomic status, um, actually has helped me in the sense that Americans love the stories of people who come up from nothing and become something. I promise you that if I use that story and share that in other parts of the world, I lose credibility almost immediately because I wasn't born into the right status. I wasn't part of, you know, so that in those settings, I play up more the PhD, the educational background, the professor stuff. So for me, it's, this is all of my authentic self. What part of it I want to share kind of depends on the context. It's kind of how much do you want to share with with who you are and you know what your your background is from, I so wish if if this audience members are, I so would, would be so curious about the context for that that question um, because to some extent it, it it a little bit matters what the individual is moving into or from. Um, you know, I've had the reverse be true where I because I do work with a lot of volunteer organizations where individuals come from a lot of privilege and they're moving into working with 
uh, NGO leaders who have not been raised with, with that type of privilege. And so what part of their background do they want to, to bring out in that, in that environment? No, that's very interesting. And, you know, one you wouldn't always think about, but back to your advice is kind of knowing, you know, your audience or, you know, what will help you connect with people. And sometimes we don't learn that until we make mistakes. And then you learn the next time what to do differently, too. And and sometimes people won't flag for you that, that this was a mistake. I mean, I, I, I have to admit, I shared my personal story a few too many times until I realized this wasn't helping me in certain countries. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that works so well, and I study this, you know, so it's just, it, it was so much part of my identity that I... I felt like I, I liked to share it. But, I, you know, as an American, we're also very comfortable with self-disclosure. And that, that too, can, can, can vary. And, and in some cultures, it's viewed as, as very crass, as, as wrong, as overly um, accessible, too, too personal. So you have, to know, you have to know where you're going and with whom you're interacting. Yeah. So maybe just touch on, there was another question that came in actually this morning that was talking about, is it easier to build cultural agility with millennials because they've been connected to, you know, people around the world through technology? Such a good question. Of the eight critical cultural, uh, eight critical competencies, things like, you know, teamwork, digital technology, critical thinking, communication, leadership, career management. The one that the students rated themselves as least effective on was this cultural agility, intercultural fluency. Only 35% of students rated themselves effective on it. And I think in part, if you imagine campuses have become more diverse, but if you, if you realize that when humans are under any amount of pressure or stress, we naturally gravitate, it's human, we naturally gravitate toward comfort. So it's not that, that students or adults for that matter are xenophobic or, or, or racist or whatever. It, it's just that they're moving to comfort. As a function of moving to comfort, they oftentimes find that um, they stay with those who look and seem a whole lot like them. I wish that, the, that our next generation will be better at this, but so much of cultural agility is so fundamentally human that the presence of other people from different cultures and certainly technology is not going to change natural cultural agility. Technology is really interesting. I've been doing a lot of talks lately on the issue of technology because so many people believe that technology makes the need for understanding cultural differences kind of go away. And what we're finding is that it's just the opposite. People have cultural tendencies for using uh, technology and then we don't have the natural interactions to help overcome the differences that we might have in them. I wish for this next generation that some of this goes away. I think they have greater exposures. So for some, they might um, have a little bit of an easier time than those of us from, from a different generation, or older generation. But remember, so much of this is fundamentally human that we really do need to work with that in organizations. Wow, that was very surprising, that statistic, you know, sharing and that they rated themselves so low. And I think that's a really good flag for our talent champions, because I do think we have this mindset, oh, they already get it, it's easier. And, and they're identifying, self-identifying, they don't have that. Like you said, it's humid. And so this focus on creating this cultural awareness and agility is is with us for a while and it's even more important as we become more globalized yeah it, just to, just kind of put it in perspective so these were the students rating themselves on their own proficiency so this is percentage of students rating themselves as proficient on teamwork and collaboration, they rated themselves 85%. On digital technology, 60%. On critical thinking, 80%. On professionalism, 89%. Wow. Right? It goes down along the list. Dead last. On global intercultural cultural agility, they rated themselves as 35%. Wow. Proficient. Isn't that crazy? That is just so interesting and great information for our audience to know and have. So good. All right. And your employers agreed, by the way. <laughs> Any final advice for our talent champions? 
maybe the biggest piece of advice that I could offer is I know so many organizations will do the right thing on training. I, I, I believe that to be true. I believe many organizations will do the right thing on giving people, because they need to, right? Giving people the experiences, whether it's global project management or working in multicultural environments or sending people on assignments, whatever it is. So, so the two of the three components of how do you build cultural agility, I believe for the most part, more or less the components are there. The one piece I would hope all talent champions would embrace, and that is the idea that look at not everyone is naturally wired for this, but everyone can build cultural agility. Understand your bench, understand individual start points, understand how to tailor and, and help people become more culturally agile, whether it's those individuals you bring into your organization or those individuals who are already in your leadership pipeline. Um, th that will be so critical. So that, that understanding of cross-cultural competencies. Fantastic advice. So one question I love to ask all of my guests is, is there one person from your past that's had the greatest impact on your career and you wouldn't be where you are today without that person's influence? <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, the one person is a one couple. Um, when I was an undergraduate, I, as I, I, I just shared with you my, my background and my story, um, my family, you know, I was of the first generation to go to college. I went to a, a small local Jesuit school in Buffalo, New York, Canisius College. And I, um, yeah, I was a psychology major. I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do with it. Two professors, my freshman year of college, took me under their wing and, and really changed the course of my life because um, I, I studied abroad and they mentored me not only through the experience, but after the experience. So the after part was, was so critical. So I had the experience, but as we know from learning, helping digest that experience was so critical. I was studying abroad in Rome when I re returned from that experience. I was going through what we now understand to be repatriation uh, challenges, depression, anxiety, the like. I just didn't feel like I fit anymore. I was changed, something was different. I, didn't, I couldn't understand it. But this was 1989, and there wasn't a lot of research on repatriation. So they said, look at Paula, if, if this experience had such a profound influence on your life, why don't you study it? And so in 1989, I, you know, I didn't know what study it meant. Study it meant go get a PhD and do some research on it. So my, my grad school applications read, I want to study what makes people effective living and working internationally, and I want to know how they change from deep developmental cross-cultural experiences. And I joke that because of them, 30 years later, I'm still trying to understand what makes people effective living and working internationally <laughs> and how they change from deep developmental experiences. It's Harvey Pines and Judy Larkin. Um, they just both recently retired from Canisius College and I just created a scholarship in their honor uh, because they, they truly, I do not know where I would be without them. Wow, what a wonderful story and a, a wonderful couple that you highlighted. And this is, this interaction with you has been so fascinating. And I could see you being that kind of professor for your students now and moving forward. Uh, I, I would only hope to be half of the <laughs> half of what they've offered me. So, so as we wrap up, how could our listeners you know, get in touch with you or maybe learn more from you? Sure. Um, probably the easiest way. Our website is is tascaglobal.com, T-A-S-C-A, global.com. And my email is paula at <laughs> tascaglobal.com. So certainly if anybody wanted to send an email, uh, follow-up questions, whatever, I would be more than happy to answer them. Wow. It's been such a pleasure having you so authentic and just so appreciate your willingness to share your experience and expertise with our audience. Well, my pleasure, Diana. Thank you so much for the invitation. To wrap up, here are the key takeaways from today's episode. Cultural agility is the ability to quickly, comfortably, and effectively work in different countries and with people from different cultures. 
Regardless of whether you're visiting another country, using technology to connect with people from around the world, or working with people who've come from abroad, cultural agility is a key competency in large and small organizations. As you think about developing organizational cultural agility, you need to know your bench strength. There are three components to assessing cultural agility. One, cultural awareness or basic understanding that individuals from different backgrounds interpret things differently. Two, being from or traveling to another country doesn't automatically make you culturally agile. You need to be able to see things from another person's perspective. Three, personality traits of humility, curiosity, and resilience can be developed to help an individual quickly build cultural agility. When you travel internationally, find a peer or someone who is a native of the country and spend some quality time with that individual. Maybe share a meal or enjoy a relaxed conversation. Doing so will help you to understand what they do and how they do it. You can also ask them to help you understand how to be more effective in that culture. If you're dealing with individuals who aren't naturally culturally agile, don't throw them into the deep end of cultural shock. Ramp up their cultural experiences over time. Remember that culture develops gradually. As a child, you learn your culture by degrees, and developing cultural agility as an adult will be similar. When working with a language barrier, eye contact and a friendly smile can go a long way to developing a warm environment. Also, make the effort to learn how to pronounce an unfamiliar name correctly. Even the younger generations on college campuses today that are digitally connected and learning in diverse environments still rate themselves low on cultural agility. So the need for training and work in this area isn't going away. Come back in two weeks as we continue the cultural conversation from a different angle, looking at the issues of job fit, cultural fit, and the challenges for diverse leaders who are trying to get into the executive pipeline. To receive an email when our next episode is released, subscribe at talent-champions.com. Email subscribers also receive access to bonus content from our guest. That's talent-champions.com. Click on subscribe. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Talent Champions with Diana Thomas. For more information about today's show or to receive more valuable insights, please visit franklincovey.com slash talentchampions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.